Brought to you in association with Funk 27, Discontent Providers and Global Butterflies. Bringing trans and non-binary awareness to the business sector. Visit globalbutterflies.com. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Aid Thompson Show. Uh, more commonly known as Aid Thompson and other disappointments. Cheers. Mm. If it's your first time joining us, uh, this is your twice weekly delve, nay, cannonball dive bomb, into the worlds of politics, dystopia, news, current affairs, and indeed the rich tapestry of melancholic crestfallen woe <laughs> uh, that we've all come to know and loathe as the modern Great Britain. I'm your host, the always upbeat Aid Thompson, and you can think of me as your sort of your little ray of sunshine, as it were, on an otherwise cloudy decade. <laughs> um, a beam of light to brighten your darkness. Let us gallivant through these fields of gallows humour once more, as together we try to impart a helping of restorative sanity, if not cathartic sighing across the wires. What's in the news, guys? What can we riff about today, do you think, on Wednesday the 22nd of November, if you're watching the premiere of this on YouTube or checking it out on Patreon, where it goes first? For two days before it re-emerges in final form on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. What can we try and make sense of today? I suppose the big story of the week is the autumn statement uh, from Jeremy Hunt, but I've I've already done a punk politics video about that. And then we've got, you know, Trump still doing battle with his various court cases over in the States. Uh, but I feel like I've talked about that you know, a zillion times as well. So today I want to take your attention away from the Westminster navel gazing, away from the hysteria of the US potentially re-electing one of its most embarrassing leaders. And instead, I would like to pan across to another country that's barged its way into my political periphery of late. And no, I'm not talking about Argentina before you go ahead and predict it. Um, I shall not be going into the utter state of Argentina for this episode. Although, you know, I don't know if, um, if any of you have seen through the footage of that guy that they've just elected as their president. I mean, I mean, he's, ba he's basically Trump, isn't he? He's basically Boris Johnson all over again. <laughs> you know, it's the second wind for nationalist populism going on over there. Like better late than never, guys. You sort of missed the train a little bit, though. Like, didn't you see the populism stuff happening already in 2016? It's already been and gone. It's wreaked its havoc. It's like a... You know, at this moment, it's like a, a sort of a rabid, lawless, calamitous fair that came through the town and, you know, like all the workers pitched up in a field and and 
Left their sewage and cigarette butts everywhere and plastic bags and dog mess. All over the place. They ransacked the village. And then they just went on their way. Johnson's gone. Berlusconi's gone. Trump's gone for now. And now at this point, <laughs> just as it's all been dying down, now Argentina are like, yeah, okay, let's let's give this a go. It's kind of like, I know it's serious. I know that it's, you know, quite worrying that they've elected that figure over there. I know that for some people out there, they're going to be thinking, you know, well, what does this mean for our cousins who still live over there back in our homeland? You know, maybe Argentinian families in London or whatever. You know, what kind of state could our home country get ourselves into? But even you guys, you must be able to see the funny. You must be able to see some semblance of amusement into getting into populism in 2023. You know, after all the economic problems that it's caused the UK, after all the deaths that it's delivered to us and to the US via Trump. Not after, like, just through the pandemic, but also, you know, January the 6th, I think five people died on January the 6th. And then after Brexit and after all the demonstrable, academically provable nonsense that nationalist right-wing populism has gifted to us. To then stand there in 2023 by the million and go, yeah. Yeah, we should try that here. We should we should give that a go as well, you know? It's just quite it's a little bit of amusement to take from that, I think. Like I really think that takes a special kind of, you know, a gold tier of cretin to opt into populism now. When we're right through the other side of it. To see all the damage that it's done and then go, yeah, all right, you know, why not? Though as, you know, a, a guy on Twitter, uh, I don't call it X, by the way. I call it Twitter. It's never going to be X to me, all right? It's like when E17 changed their names to E17. It's like, no, shut up. You, you're always going to be E17. Outdated pop culture references are apparently now my thing. Um, but yes, as a tweeter by the name of Jeremy Pemberton pointed out to me earlier on this morning, they are battling with 160% inflation right now. So I don't know, you know, when just going to the supermarket becomes an opulent fantasy and the only hope that you've got of coming out of this is, is the mad rantings of a, a right-wing lunatic promising you the world. I don't know, you know, maybe who am I to judge? Guys, that's... Um, I mean, it's a sort of, you know, it's a core pillar of some of the political activity that we've seen across the globe in the last decade, isn't it? It's something that kind of gets overlooked, I think, more than it should. Is that, like, when you are living in a world where there's nothing but tough choices and a gloomy, bleak outlook, where all of the facts and the experts and the statistics and so on. Like where all of them are telling you 
yeah, look, listen, here's, here's the scoop. There's not enough oil and uh, climate change is just going to happen now. And there's very little that we can do about it. You know, it was only a year ago that climate scientists were dishing out scare stories saying, you know, what would happen if there was just a one degree change in the global temperature? I read an article this morning said that now we're, we're basically looking at three degrees of a change in global temperature, which might not sound like much, but trust me, it is catastrophic. So we're basically done for at this, at this moment. In a world where the outlook is this bleak, and there isn't actually really an awful lot of good news or calls for optimism or positive spins on things, most people either, you know, don't believe that through nationalist exceptionalism, do they? Or ignorance or desperation. And most people will run towards whoever is willing to sell them a positive story, a fantasy. And that is something that is overlooked. It's something we don't spend enough time focusing on or analysing, is that when people are really desperate, they will believe the mad rantings of a right-wing nationalist populist. They just will. Somebody who's willing to stand up there behind a podium and say, things used to be great in America and I'm going to make them great again. We're going to make America great again. Sing it with me now. Like desperate people will sing that hymn with Emperor Trump. And that is a more powerful message, apparently, than should we save democracy, guys? Um. So anyway. It looks like millions of Argentines or Argentinians are desperate enough now with their 150% inflation um, that they will now jump on this nationalist populist merry-go-round again. So, so that's good. And, you know, as are uh, arguably half of the United States of America also considering jumping back on that, uh, that ride. And maybe also are the voters of Australia, guys. Which is actually the country I wanted to talk about a bit today. Um, because, you know, I, I spend so much time talking about the UK and the US and so on, but we forget that that, you know, that other anglicised, English-speaking very white country is over there, you know, don't we? It sort of gets lost in the conversation about Western liberal democracies to some extent. But it too is grappling with some of those same issues that we are. And that's a big thing too, I think, you know? Like we rail against British exceptionalism over here, like on the left, don't we? It's a big thing for us, I think. We're always like, why, why do you think you can just send a virus packing or you can wrestle a virus to the ground, send it packing in 12 weeks just because we're British? Like, where does that come? Well, we can. Absolutely we can because we're blighty. You know, we can send a thing packing like a, like a, like a, like a cheating husband who abandoned his wife in the middle of her cancer treatment. <laughs> Not, not that that's a particular frame of reference that uh, is close to home 
uh, for me, or, or indeed close to my uh, former home, in, in which I'm probably no longer welcome. But anyway, the, the, the point is that uh, that Britain is best, and, and we're just uh, we're just better than than everybody else. You know <laughs> that British exceptionalism that we rail against. We're like, wait, why did you think we could just leave the EU <laughs> and it would just be easy and everything would just work itself out? You know, why did you think that? Well, because we're British. Because we're British and we're the best and, and everyone will want to do business with Britain and our bestiness. You know, we rail against that sort of deluded, ego-drenched, nationalistic self-obsessiveness, don't we? And yet, we too sort of obsess over the challenges that we face here in the UK as though they are the only challenges, like it's only the UK that faces them. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just our incompetent government that have afforded us, <laughs> that have visited this misfortune upon us. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm all for bashing the Tories, you know, I don't know if you picked up on that over the last couple of years. And, and a lot of the problems that we do have in the UK, they have been exacerbated by the Conservative Party, by mismanagement, by callousness or short-termism. But we do still need to remember that the challenges that we're facing are also challenges for a lot of other countries out there. They're not just Britain-specific, you know? That's important to just bear that in mind. In internationally, you know, comparable economies, a lot of the people out there are facing the same problems that British people are. Like the housing crisis, right? So let's take that as the, the first one. So obviously we, we rant and we rave and we ridicule uh, the government, successive governments. To be fair, it's not just the Conservative Party. Labour also had a fairly abysmal record of building enough houses because, as I've said before, somebody along the line worked out that the same people who vote, i.e., you know, you're over 50s, over 60s, those people own the houses. So if you don't build enough houses, the value of these people's houses will incline. And then they'll be getting richer, so they'll be thinking, oh, well, I like this government, don't want to rock the boat, I'll keep voting them in. So we are where we are. Um, but yeah, so we, we rant against successive governments for their failure to build houses. Because here in the UK, they sold off all the social housing. And they didn't green light enough new land and developments. And so because then there's insufficient flats and houses being built, uh, the stock that there is... It gets offered on, doesn't it? And there's a desperation. More people want the same house. So then this guy offers on it a bit higher and then he gets outbid, you know, and then someone steps into the equation and like the viewings and everything, and then they offer even more. And then the value of these houses is then perceived to be higher, like on that street. So the next time somebody like puts their house on the market, they price it a bit higher. Like we all know how this works, okay? We know the UK property market and the like the reasons why property has inclined in value over the last few years. But that is just a narrative of this country, of the UK, that we're living in, right? But the same thing exists in Australia. 
just like the same thing exists in the satellite towns and suburbs of like New York State. Just like the same thing happens in parts of Canada. It's not UK specific. However much we might hate our government, a lot of the problems that we face are being felt in other countries around the world. So I'm looking at an article here from Forbes. And it was published in October this year. And it's by a writer, a journalist by the name of Prashant Mehra. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not, but... Uh, and it says the, the headline is uh, Australian housing crisis, the high price we're paying. Australian housing crisis. That is a prefix you don't hear often bolted on to the housing crisis in this country. Um, that there's this whole other housing crisis overseas. Um, it says the property market is generally top of mind for the Australian public and policymakers alike because of the pivotal role it plays in the country's economy. Even so, home prices have dominated headlines in recent months as the turn in the market has upended all forecasts. Prices rose for an eighth consecutive month in September despite the central bank's year-long policy tightening cycle. CoreLogic is now predicting national housing values to reach a new high by November. This comes after a 22% jump in house prices over the 12 months into April 2022 amid a post-COVID lockdown boom. Any of this ringing any bells? Uh, it says the 12 interest rate rises that the Reserve Bank of Australia delivered since then did take some toll, knocking back prices by 9% between May and February before the market changed course in March. Does any of this sound familiar to you guys? <laughs> Storing house prices, prices going up by 20%, 12 consecutive interest rate, rate hikes. Um, it says, based on data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, House prices in Sydney averaged near $27,000 in 1970. Just bank that figure for a minute, 27K. And that would be worth about 250,000 at today's prices. But for comparison, the current median value of house prices in Sydney is $1.1 million, right? <laughs> and here's the, th right. Perhaps uncharacteristically, just for you guys, just because I felt in a sort of preppy mood for once. I have done some maths here. And the maths that I have done, right, I've worked out that if houses in Sydney in 1970 were approximately four times an average salary, right, that would have meant that an average salary in 1970 in Sydney, Australia, was about like just under $7,000. So that seems reasonable to me, right? The average salary in Sydney now, in 2023, is $91,000. And 91 times four, if you're working out in sort of mortgages, four times your income, is $364,000. Now, this article has worked out that $27,000 in 1970 would be akin to $250,000 in today's money. So you should be able to comfortably buy the same house 
as your dad bought in 1970 if you're on $91,000 here, because 91 times four is significantly over 250K, right? But here's the kicker, right? Is the average house in Sydney, as they said in the thing, is not $250,000, is it? It's not even $360,000, which would be your 91 times four, like your income times four. It is $1.1 million. <laughs> so again, house prices, just like in the UK, house prices are soaring, hugely outpacing salaries, like wage growth. And it kind of gets you thinking, like, you know, well, did, did Margaret Thatcher sell off their social housing? You know, I mean, like, I know she was bad. Guys, I know she was she was callous and ignorant and she, you know, she probably stopped certain parliamentarian paedophiles from ever being found out and prosecuted. <laughs> like, we know she was bad. We have established that. Many, many. We know she was a heartless agent of evil. But I didn't realise that her malice was such that it could travel 10,000 miles and gut fuck a whole other country's economy. <laughs> I never thought she was that bad. So, what caused it over there is what was on my mind grapes this morning. So then, then we get to this little paragraph here. Uh, it says, then came the deregulation of the financial sector during the 1980s, which resulted in increased competition and along with a shift to low inflation, which means cheap loans, right? Low interest rate environments in the early 1990s greatly increased household access to finance in Australia. So more people getting loans, more people buying houses. As demand increased, prices boomed in the late 80s and later in the 1990s. It's very, very similar to what has happened over here in the UK. And so, like, basically, this is a key thing here, right? Is financial deregulation. Banks, lenders, investors, speculators, like every, everyone in the 80s, all the yuppie movies that you watched from back in the day, everyone turned everything into some sort of speculatable betting product. That's what happened. The financialization of the 1980s. Like, it's not a coincidence that generally houses were sort of three or four times the average income in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Everybody could get on the ladder. An average family home was accessible to one income. It's not a coincidence that that was the case pretty much right up until the 1980s when they deregulated everything and financialization became a thing, you know? Anyway, where was I? So, um, yeah, basically, that is that is how everything is so screwed in every major Western country now. It's because every major Western country had a load of investors, a load of deregulated banks, people just going, yeah, just give give him a mortgage over there. Yeah, oh, give give her one as well. Oh, and, and that guy over there at the back, you know. And then they would take all of these mortgages together and they would package them up and give them a grade. And then these guys over a whole different department of the bank would go like, yeah, I'm going to bet that 70% of those default in the first year, you know, 
and then that department would be betted on. Like somebody else would go, yeah, I've received information that I think Barclays Capital, their default blah, blah, blah speculators are not on. But I'm going to bet against it. It becomes this really. Mo I mean, really, you should watch. What, what's the name of that movie? Um, it's got Ryan Gosling in it. It's about the guy that bet on the 2008 crash. Can't remember the fucking name. Um, but it, I mean, it goes into it in a lot more detail and, and way more eloquent and uh, dignified than I'm able to now on the minimal sleep that I've had. Um, but yeah, basically, like they would they would bet on the value of these these packaged up mortgages. And then, do you know what? Like the bank always wins. The house always wins, because if people do default on their mortgage, it's not like the bank are losing it. The bank just come in and take the asset. Right. The bank take the house back. And because the value of the house is always going to incline, I mean, it might dip for a couple of years, but it's, then it's just going to soar again. The house always wins. It's like, oh, win win for us, guys. So, yeah. And then so then you could textualize all of that against the interest rate situation. Sorry, I know this is a really finance heavy episode here, but like if if you're a bank, and you're being pressured to keep your interest rates low, right? Let's say you're a Lloyd's or a Barclays, or if we're going to keep this as a sort of Australia-themed episode, let's say it's um episode, sorry. Uh, let's say it's Westpac. That's a big Australian bank, right? If you're a Westpac and you're being pressured to keep your interest rates low because the Central Bank of Australia is being pressured to keep its interest rates low, so people can afford to get on the ladder because there's all this media pressure, lobby groups, campaigns, not for profits, protests. Everyone's saying we can't afford a house. We can't afford a house. Drop the interest rates. Well, like now, if a house is so expensive that you have to drop the interest rates to make the loans to buy those houses cheap enough that regular people can afford to get on the ladder, right? Well, if you're a bank and you're not making much out of mortgages, because that is that's the interest rate is like right? that's the amount of money that they make back when they sell a mortgage. If you're not making any money out of mortgages, why wouldn't you start investing in rents instead? And that's exactly what we're seeing now, like with investment and asset management conglomerates, like like it's so messed up. Like you've got the guys who should be helping families get on the ladder. You know, banks, lenders, they should be helping families get some vague proximity, uh, proximity to like financial security, get a roof over their heads and a stake in society. That should be their role. <laughs> but instead, they're, they're just sort of shrugging. They're just like, well, you know, there's not really any money in mortgages, to be honest. I tell you what there is money in, though, buying whole streets of houses <laughs> because they've worked out in the upper echelons of Westpac and Lloyd's and HSBC, all of these places, they've worked out that the return on a private rent on a whole portfolio of private rents is significantly higher than if they sold mortgages to those same properties. You know, are you still with me, guys? And so we've seen this with Goldman Sachs. We've seen it with BlackRock Asset Management. Like, honestly, have a Google. It's terrifying. 
I mean, for all the talk of, you know, population growth, people coming over to the UK, taking up the houses, for all of the talk of, you know, the absence of social housing or for um, not signing off sufficient green belt for new developments or shortages in the labour market. You know, who's going to build the houses? We need more labourers. Like for all of that. It's just the extra dollop of shit on your cornflakes, isn't it? To hear that the most powerful agent of all of those, the most concerning variable of the entire housing crisis is, is the banks, right? And they're like, yeah, do you know what? Might just buy up that entire neighbourhood over there and then just rent it out. <laughs> Further perpetuating the housing crisis because there's even fewer houses now for people to buy up. And now you've got more private rents that you got to pay. Like, it it reminds me of that scene in um, uh, uh, 30 Rock. Do you remember that show? It finished a few years ago now, but it was amazing while it was on. It was a thing by Tina Fey sort of satirising uh, Saturday Night Live, where she used to work. And anyway, there's this scene in it where her new boyfriend is going to view apartments. And he finds this place and he just falls in love with it. He just loves this apartment in New York City. And he's like, yeah, the view is incredible. Oh, it's amazing. You know, I've got a kick-ass girlfriend. It's about time I got a kick-ass apartment. He's so excited. And he's like, I can't wait to show it to you. And then just as he's sort of like hanging up the call, he turns around and there's this Arab sheikh guy. <laughs> who just walks in and he just sort of non-plussedly just looks around. He's just like, mm, yeah, you know, like he's not, he's not even that bothered about it, you know? And he just looks around. Then he looks back to the like realtor or, you know, the estate agent. And he just says to him like calmly, just non-plus. He's like, I will take this one too. You know, like, and the boyfriend's face just drops. He's like, huh? And the shake is like, my nephew will keep his motorcycles here. You know, like it's just, he's just been totally blown out the water by someone who doesn't even give a shit. You know, it's like that with BlackRock and Goldman's and all these guys buying up all the housing stock. Anyway, of course, the reason I'm bringing up Australia is because, yes, they do have the same or very similar challenges as we do in the UK, even though it might be tempting for us to sometimes go, uh, oh, you know, bloody Tories, everything's shit and they should have governed the country better. Yes, a lot of that is true. But also, not everything's going to be fixable just because a guy with a red tie stands behind the prime ministerial box at PMQs. You should set your expectations at low, people. And it's like, you know, as we've all been anger wanking over this autumn statement and, you know, shaking our fists at the clouds and wondering why Hunt couldn't do more for for parents, you know, get that untapped resource out of the house and back to the workplace that they so desperately wish they were at, you know, rather than going apeshit at their kid for the third time that morning as they've spilt their cornflakes or 
you know, shreddies all over the floor. And they're like, God, I just wish I was back at work. Why? Why? This can't be right that I'm just stuck at home in these four walls. I should be getting more help. You know, like, do, you ever find, do you ever find yourself fascinated by the Tory psyche with regard to that? Because I do. You know, this whole sort of get people back to work, but also simultaneously not helping people to get back to work paradox. Like, if you listen to this Hunt speech today, right? And all of the sort of preface to it, all of the media appearances of the last week and a lot of the newspaper coverage. A lot of it appears to have been anchored in this idea of incentivizing people back to work, guys. And it's this big shakeup of the benefit system. You know, we want to get people back to the office. No more laying about. All that stuff. And a lot of these people that they're talking about, you know, incentivizing back to work are going to be on what? Exactly. They're going to be on incapacity benefit, right? Or temporary sick leave. Interestingly, parliamentary secretaries who were signed off on temporary sick leave, they don't seem to be getting incentivized back to work, do they, to appear at the bloody COVID inquiry? No, 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 that, that's fine. Oh, if you're not feeling well, if you're not feeling well, no, it's fine. There's no rush. You just, yeah, just rest up. Come back when you're feeling better, when it's all blown over. But anyway, I digress. But yeah, Tory psyche-wise, do you ever th like think to yourself, well, okay, right. You want people, you, sorry, you don't want people laying about doing nothing, right? That's what you say. And here you have a million parents desperate to get back to work. All they need is a few more hours of government subsidised childcare and nursery cover or cover for the school holidays or regulation so that employers have to offer them work from home. So if they're in an office-based role, like, they can just work from the kitchen thing and keep an eye on their kids. You know, they don't want to be sat at home doing nothing. And yet the Tory psyche, that Tory mean spiritedness, then it kind of kicks in, doesn't it? It's like, you, you, you stay at home. You stay at home. You're getting no help from me. Absolutely none. Well, I, I thought you didn't want lazy people just, you know, laying around doing nothing. Well, uh, we don't. Well, could you, uh, could you sort me some childcare out then? Uh, no. Right, so, so I'm confused. Uh, you do want me just sitting at home drinking in doll money, do you? Uh, no, I, I don't recall saying that. Right, I mean, it's, it's just very confusing because, you know, I'm, here I am. I'm, I'm a single mother. I, I mean, it might not sound like it. <laughs> Should have done this bit with a, a higher pitched voice, shouldn't I? But, uh, you know, I'm a single mother. You know, you don't, you don't want me scrounging. Um, half your schoolmates write very disparaging columns about me. Um, here I am trying to get out and get back to work, which you say you want me to do, but you're not going to chip in a few quid to make sure that I can earn triple that, which you could then tax. And then I would go and spend it in the shops or online. And I would not be pulling down universal credit as well. I'll tell you what you can pull down. You can pull down my pants and suck me off, you filthy fucking poverty. All right, that's... Uh... <laughs> That was, an, that was the last bit was unnecessary, I feel. I feel like I was nailing the point sufficiently without descending to such lewd uh, exaggeration, comedic devising or whatever. Anyway, look, it's... it's I, I guess the point is that it's like they, they really don't want single parents living off the state, right? 
But at the same time, they kind of do want single parents living off the state, quite obviously, you know, because it gives them that that enemy. This is what I mean. It's like a Tory psyche thing. It gives them an enemy. It's fascinating. You know, they need that feeling of superiority and snootiness, don't they? Because it's their whole identity. If you took that away from them, who would they even be? They may even be nice. <laughs> you took that away. You know, but it's that, it's that mentality where they're like, oh, God, bloody, you know, single parents living off the state. Oh, what, what a drain they are. Oh, gosh. Like that sort of snootiness, that bitchiness. They like having that enemy. And you know that that's their vibe. You know that that is actually the mentality that they have. Because, right, here's, here's another thing to Google, right? There was a report out last year. Um, I may have referenced this in a TikTok or a YouTube video. I honestly, I can't remember that. But I, it, for some reason, it rings a bell for something I've done recently. But here's, there was a report that was out last year by Save the Children and the IPPR. Uh, and it found, after a study, it found, get this, this will infuriate you. Especially if you're a parent and you have kids and you're struggling to work, to maintain some independent, right, here's, here's the report. They found that if they funded socialised childcare for kids from the ages of 0 to 11, so full-on childcare, you don't even have to worry about it anymore. If they funded that, uh, they would get a return of £13 billion <laughs> into the economy. £13 billion net return. It's not 13 billion and then you take away all the costs. It's 13 billion they get to keep. It's 13 billion pounds that they're just chucking in the bin. You know, like morally it's outrageous, but even economically, fiscally, it's just, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't you think, like, shouldn't we try and look at ways to generate profit and, you know, sort the GDP out? This, this could be part of that. You know, why? What possible reason could you have? For no, no, you don't, you don't, no, you're not going to get it. <laughs> I thought you said every penny was precious and money's tight and you want to pay down the deficit. Right, yes, I did, I did say all of that. But unfortunately for you, Aid, what, what is it? What possible reason could you have for saying, well, you forgot to factor in that feeling snooty and classist and judgmental and enjoying hating single mothers is a feeling that is simply worth more than 13 billion pounds. I mean, it really feels, it feels fucking incredible, Aid. You, you should try it sometime. It is, it feels better than the illegal antisocial scourge of NOS canisters. It really, it's hard to believe. I was as shocked as you are, but it is an incredible feeling. It's like having my own personal fentanyl. Honestly, hey, like whenever I'm feeling down, you know, like what maybe one of my best friends has been caught trying to sexually harass somebody or somebody else has been caught up in a lobbying scandal or something. I just look out the window at an exhausted single mother of two on a council estate, somebody that I could help, that it would make moral and economic sense to help. But instead, I just look at her and I go, "Ooh, look at her. And her. I'm so much better than her and her hard, bloody life. Ooh. 
Oh, that's a lovely hit of endorphins that I'm getting right now. Oh, my goodness. I mean, really, really, this, this feeling should be illegal. It is a $13 billion feeling. It is, it is, it, it's basically a drug. And it, it, and it, it, it makes me laugh more than laughing gas. Um, where was I, guys? Before I went a bit, uh, bit off on a tangent there. Do you, do you think, here's a question for you. Do you think Australia has decent childcare? Because obviously that's a big thing over here. Like, I spend about a thousand pounds a month on childcare. Imagine having that stripped out of your payslip. <laughs> like, you're doing okay. On paper, your salary looks all right. But then, out comes the childcare. You are financially neutered for another four and a half weeks. But again, it's it's a big thing about like, oh, the UK is so terrible. Why can't they govern us properly? Why can't they give us some help? Why is the UK so shit? What is it like in Australia? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's better than the UK? Do you think, is there is there hope on the horizon if you move to somewhere like Australia? Should we take a quick look? Have we still got time? Yeah, we've got, got five or ten minutes, haven't we? So... Because this is this is a big thing for me, like selfishly right now, is this idea that there might be greener pastures or whatever just over the horizon. You know, things could be different somewhere else. Um, and it's, you know, Australia is definitely like in my head at the moment because I've, I've got a software engineer at work who is thinking about moving over to Sydney. Uh, my stepsister just moved there. Um, my girlfriend's best friend from... Years ago, uh, she's a teacher. She moved over there, although not to Sydney, over to uh, Adelaide. Um, and it's always seen, certainly by me, but I think by most other people, it's always seen as this sort of westernised, eastern-positioned utopia, isn't it? You know, great weather, culturally very similar. Um, then you've got your houses with pools. Uh, you know, it's, it's enticing. It's appealing, I think. But as I said earlier... They've got similar challenges, you know, properties, prices, housing crisis, that sort of stuff. All of that is outrageous, thanks largely to the financialization of the 1980s, which we've, you know, we sort of covered. Um, but also, like, if you were moved to, to, to move out there, if you did say to yourself, like, that is it, the UK is done. You know, like the, the Bank of England have hiked interest rates so high that mortgages are just screwed and now we're being propelled into the private rental sector and and those are shooting up faster than the you know tory i was pretending to be five minutes ago shooting fentanyl classism directly into his eyeballs like oh, oh yeah give me give me that total lack of social mobility just, just straight in the eyeballs excuse me while i kiss the sky anyway um, but yeah, it's easy to think, you know, fuck the Tories, fuck the Bank of England, the UK's done, the housing crisis, the collapsing NHS, the national debt. But let's look at Australia for a second, because childcare is a big thing for us in the UK. And sometimes we think that these problems don't exist overseas. Like it would all be easy if we just up sticks and moved. So uh, do they have childcare? Uh, not really in the socialised sense. Like in Germany, they have pretty decent socialized childcare as i understand it uh in australia i don't think so <laughs> is it cheaper than the uk uh no <laughs> uh the average here 900 pounds a month uh in australia it's 1000 pounds a month or the equivalent thereof 
So no. And then we get to like debt and GDP and they're actually pretty good with that. So they might have more money to spend on like public services and so like over here, I always bang on about this and I'm sorry for the repetition, but over here we are over 100% of our GDP is allocated to our national debt. Um, they are at only 42% of their GDP. So economy wise, that's pretty good. You know, maybe they don't need to borrow so much money because their government has bought up all the homes and now they're renting them out in the private rental center. Like maybe it's something really nefarious like that. I don't know. But like, I mean, I'm only giving this a cursory glance. I'm just looking at the, the top level headline, you know, childcare, property or whatever. But once you scratch beneath the surface with a lot of these governments, you know, you find out stuff like it, like it could be that nefarious, you know, like they've only got that much money to spend on their public services because they bought up all the housing stock and now they rent it out. Like it's easy to pay for the equivalent of the NHS and socialized childcare when you're charging people $5,000 a month for a bed sit in Sydney. It'll be something like that. I wouldn't rule it out. Governments all over the world are hugely problematic. Governments all over the world are just heartless, callous, often witless agents of evil, guys. Um, but yeah, anyway, so childcare, apparently ludicrously expensive. Property, apparently ludicrously expensive. Interest rates hiked 12 times. I guess in conclusion, what I'm saying is we all just need to just pan out a little bit and think about why these problems seem to exist in every major developed Western liberal democracy throughout the world. Because here's the thing, right? Here's, like, this, is, this is where my head is at with this stuff is like in Australia, New Zealand, in Canada, Germany, we're seeing very, very similar issues. You know, in the Eurozone, we see very little growth. Um, we see high inflation. We see housing crises um, in Canada and uh, the US. We see high interest rates, uh, inflation. In Australia and New Zealand, we see astronomical childcare costs and, you know, their own housing crises. And so much of it comes back down to finite resources, doesn't it? Like, you can generate a load of magic money if, you you know, you just press a few buttons on a thing. Oh, boom, look, there's five billion in the UK PLC current account. Go and spend it. Have fun. Um, like, you can do that if you want. Or you can hike interest rates. Uh, the central bank and try to make it more expensive for people and businesses to exist, you know, to try and get a hold of the inflation, right? But actually a lot of the inflation that they're battling comes back down to resources getting scarcer or crops getting burnt out or droughts impacting produce, which is actually just to sort of circle back. And, you know, we were talking about Argentina very briefly earlier, one of the reasons that inflation has soared to 150% in Argentina is because of global warming, because they've had such colossal droughts and fires burning out the crops. So it costs much, much more to just go into a shop and then buy your fruit and veg. Or it could just as easily come down to oil wells drying up or for it getting more expensive to extract oil and gas out of rigs in the sea. And so then that inflation, because it's a finite resource and you pay more for it, and then that cost gets passed on to consumers, because that inflation just starts soaring, then that gets battled by the central banks as though it's some sort of anomaly, you know? 
You get people in PMQs, people in congressional hearings, people doing podcasts, right wingers, Tufton Street types talking about like, well, inflation is a global problem. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Like it's just this anomaly. And banks have one tool at their disposal to battle this anomalous phenomenon inflation that's affected. We don't know where it came from, guys. We'll never talk about where it came from. The root causes. But the reality is that those resources that cause the inflation, they are not going to get more plentiful. It all comes back to climate change. It all comes back to oil and natural gas. And so, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't really know how I'm supposed to leave this on on an uplifting comedic note, you know, other than to say, yeah, um, everything is fucked. Uh, no, I, I don't really see a way out of this. Uh, we are all actually doomed. <laughs> now, you know, does anyone have a deluded populist out there who's willing to sell me a fantasy story? Because, you know, I've kind of bummed myself out a little bit with this episode. And yes, I am now willing to buy your magic beans. Sell me that fantasy, optimistic, uplifting story, please. Um, speaking of magic beans, guys, um, do consider throwing yours over to Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash aid Thompson with an I-N uh, on the end. What do you get for joining the Patreon? Well, there's a load of benefits. Uh, I'm doing London-based meetups, probably the next one in January. Um, I'm doing monthly Skype one-to-one -one calls. So if you join, there's like three tiers on there. So you can choose which one you want. like. But for the uh, for the upper tier, I'm doing Skype one-to-one -one calls. We could talk about politics, the podcast, life, love, the universe, how doomed we all are. Uh, there's a Discord channel, uh, instant messaging chat. You can do that. There's an RSS feed so that when you get episodes of the podcast two days before everyone else, you could just plumb it into Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your podcast player of choice is, and it'll go directly into that. So you don't need to worry about downloading a special thing to get the episodes two days before everyone else. Uh, you get first dibs on tickets to the live shows, like the Riot Society one. That was me, Danny Price, uh, Marina Perkis, Dane Baptiste. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, prior to that, we did one at Glastonbury. Uh, we also did one at 21 Soho back in February. Uh, and you get first dibs on the tickets for that before they sell out. Um, also, you get credited at the end of shows like this. So once again, big shouts to Rachel Harris, uh, Bowman, Kai, Christy, David Voice, Martin Maracas, uh, Mojo Sabian, Peter Del Monte, Pingu, Stuart, uh, T-Rex, Aaron Smith, Alex Souter, Jeff McGow, Ned Berg, Sarah Setters and Simon Flack. Thank you so much, guys, for your continued support. Um, I'll be back this coming Friday night with a guest. Until then, take care of yourselves. Keep it strictly booge and definitely hashtag Benfluencer. Uh, almost didn't say that properly there. Hashtag Binfluencer. There we go. Um, anyway, I'm out this motherfucker. Mm -hmm.